Our gospel lesson comes from Luke chapter 1. Pay attention to the gospel of our God. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit as when it, and was in the deserts till the day of His manifestation to Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, which is truth. Help us to meditate on it in such a way that glorifies You and We ask for Your Spirit's help in understanding what You have to say to us and going forth from here as doers of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today's sermon is actually based more on the Old Testament reading and then primarily on the epistle lesson. I forgot to tell Merlene that when she was doing the bulletin. That was my fault. So the, the sermon today and the next time I preach will be part two. 
when will all things work together for my good? Learning to wait on God. As we go into the Advent season, I wanted to spend a couple of Sundays, a couple of sermons, meditating on what it means to wait on God. Because that's one of the themes of Advent. one of the themes in all that you noticed in our Scripture readings. You'll notice in, all, in the songs that we sing. It's a time of anticipation and waiting. And so we wait eagerly, but we wait patiently. And you've got to hold those two together. There's some tension there because our anticipation is eager and it should be, but it should also be patient. And so this time and next time, we're going to talk about that what it means. And, and by the way, a side note here, Advent is not a, a season in which we pretend to be waiting for the birth of Christ. Right? That's not what Advent's about. We're not, we don't go back 2,000 years and, and act as if Jesus has not come and, and our anticipation is for His birth in that sense. No, the, the believers, the saints who lived before the coming, the first coming of Christ. They anticipated that eagerly and patiently. But we have other things to anticipate eagerly and patiently. We celebrate the first coming and we anticipate His second coming and all the, the things that He promised to do between those two comings that still are yet to happen. So today we're gonna, I'm going to lay the theological foundation for waiting on God, why we can wait on God, why we can hope in Him patiently even as we wait eagerly. In our epistle lesson from Romans 8, Paul writes the well-known words that we've all heard many times. And in at least one sermon to you, uh, the last nine or ten months, I've featured this verse. It wasn't the primary text, but... We discussed it, and it's Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Now, if this sentence were not in Scripture, we might be tempted to dismiss it as a cliche. In our weaker moments, we may not even want to hear this promise. We're just honest with ourselves. We've all had times when we don't feel as though this Scripture is, quote, meeting us where we're at, unquote. Some of you are going through a time like that right now, perhaps. Now, we would never say that out loud. You know it's not right. But secretly, we sometimes wonder if this Scripture applies to us, or at least we don't know how it could. If you're like me, you know that it's true. But sometimes you think that it's true for everyone else. Because it doesn't feel true to you, all things work together for good to those who love God. Or you might even be tempted to think that there are certain things in other people's lives, maybe even people you don't know that you hear about or you read about, and you just wonder how it could be true for them. I wonder if Joseph was thinking about something along these lines. Of course, Paul had not written this text when Joseph was around. But I wonder if he was thinking something like this, when he was stuck in the pit that his brothers had thrown him into. Everything was going wrong. But was everything going to work out for his good? 
Joseph had several opportunities to question whether everything in his life was going to turn out right, if God was going to make all these wrongs right. After his brothers threw him into the pit, they got him out only to sell him to Egyptian slave traders. And eventually he got sold to Potiphar, who was the captain of the palace guard. And things looked good for Joseph Joseph for a while. He worked his way up to being Potiphar's right-hand man. But then Potiphar's wife seduced him. Joseph resisted the temptation. He fled Potiphar's wife. But she lied about the whole thing. She falsely accused Joseph of trying to attack her and force himself upon her. And the result was that Joseph was thrown into an Egyptian prison. After Joseph had been in prison for some time, it appeared that there was hope for him. The king's butler and the king's baker had been thrown into prison. And while they were there, Joseph interpreted their dreams. He told the butler, or the cupbearer, that he was about to get out of prison. He's going to be released. He's going to be restored to his position with the king, with the Pharaoh. And he's going to be serving again in his capacity as the butler, the cupbearer. Things are looking good for Joseph. He tells tells this guy, just make sure and tell the king who I am. So it looks like the cupbearer is going to go back and talk to Pharaoh about Joseph and how he's a good man. Get him out of prison. But what happens when the cupbearer returns? He forgets to tell Pharaoh about Joseph for two years. The cupbearer doesn't remember to tell Pharaoh what he was supposed to tell him. And he doesn't remember until Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. And so finally, the cupbearer, everybody's desperate. The cupbearer says, oh yeah, there's this guy who's able to interpret dreams. He's in your prison. And so they call up Joseph who interprets Pharaoh's dream. And then Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt after that. But this was a long road for Joseph. Many years went by. It took many years before Joseph was finally vindicated. He had to die many deaths. He had to endure many disappointments. He had to wait a long time. And much of that time, there was no guarantee that, it was going, that anything was going to be resolved in his life. He had to wait a long time before he was finally brought up out of the dungeon. For good. He was stripped of his robe, his coat of many colors. He was thrown into a well or pit by his brothers who sold him into slavery. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused. Thrown into a dungeon. Forgotten by the guy that he helped. And so, his hope for freedom, his last hope with the cupbearer was presumably gone. And during those years in prison, especially after it had become clear that he'd been forgotten, Joseph probably had a hard time believing that all of this was going to work out for his good. If you were in Joseph's shoes, and if someone came to visit you in Pharaoh's prison and exhorted you to believe that all things will work out for your good because you love God, would you be able to hear these words and believe them and make sense of them? Or would you think that the person obviously 
doesn't know what you're going through. I think Joseph always knew this. I don't think he ever forgot it. There's evidence of that in the text, and we'll get to that. I'm not saying he didn't have moments of weakness. Sure, he had to fight against the temptation to doubt God's goodness, of course. God probably felt far off and silent to Joseph at many times. But Joseph knew God personally, and he trusted in God. He trusted in God's goodness, even when the circumstances were not at all good. He knew that his God was a God who works things out, works everything out for good to those who love him, at least in the end. Because he's a just and a righteous God who rights all wrongs and uses wrong for good. That's what, his, that's what Joseph told his brother several, several years later at the end of Genesis in chapter 50. Joseph's brothers were worried that Joseph might seek revenge now that their dad was dead there's now there's nothing holding joseph back from taking full revenge on what his brothers did to him but joseph told his brothers in genesis 50 verse 20 you meant evil against me but god meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive and back in genesis 45 joseph said something similar on the very day that he was reunited with his brothers. In Genesis 45.5, Joseph tells his brothers, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. I skipped a verse there. And to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Trusting God means believing that God is in control of your circumstances, every circumstance that you're in. It means believing that God is not just standing by passively as you walk through the valley, the shadow of death, but rather that He is actively sending you into the valley and through the valley. Just as God sent Joseph into slavery, and into the Egyptian dungeon for all those years. God controls your circumstances and God sends you, actively sends you through the valley of the shadow of death. It was good for Joseph. And it was good for God's kingdom for Joseph to go through those things. And God also sends you through the valleys for your good and for the good of his kingdom. Now, so you're no different from Joseph in that sense. If Joseph didn't get special treatment, what makes us think that we will? God knows you and loves you as much as he loved Joseph. He has a definite and well-thought-out purpose for all of the inexplicable circumstances in your life. He's got it all mapped out. He's already planned your steps, the Scripture says. Even if He hasn't revealed to you exactly where those steps are going to go and what the purpose is for all those steps. Your duty is not to try and figure out why God is putting you through trials. You're simply called to endure them faithfully as Jesus did. After all, 
you can't control your circumstances anyway. You can't order your life in such a way that you avoid hardships and heartaches. Scripture says that it's impossible. It's like trying to shepherd the wind. Shepherding your life is like shepherding the wind. You can't do it. Proverbs 16.9 The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So you, can't, you can make your plans, but in the end, the Lord is the one that's actually establishing your steps. Proverbs 19.21 Many plans are in a man's heart, but the purpose of the Lord will prevail. So no matter how hard you try, you can't thwart God's purposes for you. And these, these promises are especially true for those who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. If He wants to put you through a trial, then through the trial you will go. No matter how well you've tried to insulate yourself from pain and trials and difficulties. And your job is not to try to understand everything God is doing in your life or in the world for that matter. Joseph and Job and Paul had many moments, perhaps many weeks and months and years when they did not, did not understand everything that God was doing. They couldn't have. Because God doesn't reveal it to us in its fullness. Proverbs 20, verse 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. So how can anyone understand his own way? So if your steps were from you, maybe you could understand your own way. But since they're from the Lord, you just need to accept that you won't be able to understand your very life. You're not going to understand your way. It's not going to make total sense to you because you're not the one planning it out. It's God. Jeremiah 10.23 says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not his own. No one who walks directs his own steps. So your way is not your own. It's God's. So stop pretending that it is. It only will frustrate you and discourage you, and distract you from faithfulness. Your steps are not your own, they're God's. Your only job is to be faithful in the steps that God establishes for you. And your faithful endurance may not result in saving the world as Joseph's did. Probably won't. However, your perseverance will have a profound impact on you and those around you. God uses it for your good and for the good of His kingdom. Joseph was not a superhuman. He was a fallen human like you and me. His trust in God was a simple faith like yours and mine. And yet he had a tenacious faith in the goodness of God. Joseph loved God and he knew that God loved him. And he knew this even in the valley of the shadow of death. He knew God would work everything out in accordance with God's good and perfect wisdom. 
which was above Joseph's. So you might be thinking, well, it was easy for Joseph to tell his brothers at that point that God was the one who sent him to Egypt and that God had meant it for good. It, it was easy for Joseph to say this because he was looking at it from the other side. And you know, I can always do that when I'm on the other side of it, when all the pain is in the past. What if Joseph's brothers had come to him while he was in prison and when there was no hope and the last hope had been dashed? Would Joseph still have been able to recognize that it was God's hand that had taken him to Egypt, that had sent him to Egypt? I think so, because Joseph demonstrates that his faith is real. Again, no doubt Joseph had times when he felt as though God had forsaken him and when he had to fight despair, and we must fight despair. The Lord Jesus Himself had those same emotions on the cross. But at His core, Joseph was a man of faith and we see his faith throughout his life, but we see it especially at the end of his imprisonment in Genesis 41. You can turn there if you want. But do you remember what Joseph says to Pharaoh? The first thing he says to Pharaoh when Pharaoh calls him up to interpret his dream. In Genesis 41, verse 15, Pharaoh tells Joseph, I have heard it said of you that you could understand a dream and interpret it. To interpret it. And Joseph's response in the very next verse is the response of a man who knows God personally And it was learned to trust God with all of his heart and not to lean on his own understanding or strategies or maneuvering. To just say what's right, to do what's right, to say what's true, to acknowledge God in all of his ways and let God take care of the rest. Joseph says in Genesis 41.16, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now keep in mind that Joseph had not been freed yet. He's still a prisoner. Nor had he been guaranteed that he would get out of prison. If he can't interpret Pharaoh's dream to Pharaoh's liking, then he's at least going to go back to prison, if not worse. And keep in mind that Pharaoh was considered to be a God incarnate himself. So, so Joseph is speaking to a, a God, somebody, somebody who considers himself a God and everybody else considers himself an incarnate God as well. Joseph knows this. And still in his answer to Pharaoh in Genesis 41.16, he doesn't back down from the truth from talking to Pharaoh about the one true God who is able to provide an answer to Pharaoh to Pharaoh's problem. It's not in me. God, the one true God, will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. The one true God is willing to help a false God interpret his dream. This is brave. This is courageous. This is faith in action. Joseph is exemplifying Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths, or better, make your paths straight. Joseph was willing to just wait on God as long as it took 
He didn't try to accomplish something on his own by making sure his words were not offensive. He just said what is true. He was willing to wait on God. If you have your Bibles open and you are at verse 16 there in Genesis 41, I want to look at one more thing with you. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. The Greek Old Testament says, without God an answer of peace shall not be given to Pharaoh. Now the word for peace there in the Hebrew is shalom. One of the most important words in the Old Testament. And Joseph's point is that only God can give Pharaoh peace. Only God can accomplish this. Joseph, you see, already had this shalom, this peace. Somehow Joseph had maintained his peace, his shalom, at least in his heart, a peace that passes all understanding, even while he was rotting away in a second millennium B.C. Egyptian prison. Joseph had come to the stark realization that God alone can give peace. He's waiting on God. And if you're looking for peace in anything or in anyone besides God, then you won't find it. Joseph had figured this out. Pharaoh needed to know this, and you need to know this. We need to know this. God alone can give you an answer of peace. But remember, the peace that Joseph had was not always accompanied with peaceful circumstances. There's a difference between having peace and having peaceful circumstances. One does not necessarily come with the other in this life. The peace that Joseph had came by faith alone, not by sight. Remember Paul says in our epistle lesson, what's hope that you can see? That's not hope. You hope for things that you cannot see. Joseph had that kind of hope. God had been putting Joseph through the ringer for a long time. Joseph had a lot of reasons to think that God didn't care about him. Humanly speaking, worldly thinking. And yet, when Joseph comes up for air, the first words out of his mouth reveal a deep trust in God. After all those years, Joseph still had peace with God which is why he knew he could be an agent of God's peace to Pharaoh. It appears that Joseph knew all along that someday God was going to use all of his dreadful circumstances for good. And we see this same kind of faith in the man who wrote Romans 8, verse 28. Paul, especially in our epistle lesson today. Paul didn't write Romans from an ivory tower. He didn't write Romans from a cushy chair in an air-conditioned office. He certainly didn't have those circumstances throughout much of his ministry. He wrote Romans just after having been in prison himself, and he's going to go back to prison. Paul already had faced very much persecution at this point. And he knew that he would face more prison and more persecution very likely in the coming years so when Paul writes all things work together for good to those who love God to the called according to his purposes 
he's writing this by faith, not by sight, not, not by the things that he can see, but by faith. At the end of this passage in Romans 8, 37, Paul says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Another way to translate this is, in all these things we are super conquerors through Him who loved us. Paul sort of coined a word there. The Greek for super and, and conquer, put him, conqueror and put them together. Super conquerors. From the world's perspective, Paul was anything but a super conqueror. Paul makes this statement about being super conquerors in the teeth of persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. He faced constant persecution by the Jewish leaders. And if it wasn't enough, the ships that Paul got on kept wrecking. God seemed to have it in for Paul. God meant what He said to Ananias. Remember at Paul's conversion a few days after he was converted, God told Ananias, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my sake, for the sake of my name. Well, God kept his word there. Paul suffered a lot. But Paul knew that God, God was the one putting him through this. God was the one sending him through these valleys, these trials. Paul asked God three times to take at least one of them away. I don't know for sure which one it was. Paul refers to it as the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. But what's Jesus tell Paul? No. Nope. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it in your side. I'm not going to take away the thorn. Why? Well, Jesus tells Paul why. He doesn't get specific. But he says that my grace is going to be sufficient for you. And my strength is going to be made complete in your weakness. You're going to experience more of my grace because of this trial. So God knew that Jesus was putting him through the ringer for a purpose. Paul knew, even in the midst of his distress and despair and hunger and nakedness and loneliness and failing eyesight and constant harassment, he somehow knew that all things work together for good to those who love God. And so he wrote those words by faith, with, with hope, not by sight. So this is not a trite saying from someone who has never experienced pain or suffering. No, this comes from someone, a man who was extremely acquainted with physical and emotional pain. Perhaps the most important we can, question we can ask, though, is how did Paul know this? How did he know that he and others were super conquerors? That everything was going to work out for good? To the, to the, eye, to the physical eye, human eye, it often looked as though the evil powers were having their way, were accomplishing their purposes. It often seemed as though the purposes and promises of God had come to a grinding halt in Paul's life. After all, Paul was the one that God commissioned to carry out God's purposes and promises to the world, to the Gentiles. And he, he wanted to go to Spain and beyond. And yet Paul had to struggle just to stay alive. And he didn't get to end up doing everything he wanted to do. 
Keep that in mind. Paul knew that God's promises are certain, though. And Paul assures the Roman Christians that God's promises are certain in Jesus. Why? Verse 34 in Romans 8. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. He died and He's risen and He's ascended to the right hand of God. And the final thing He says in verse 34, He prays for us. He makes intercession for us. So Paul's confidence was not in outward appearances or some sort of plan that he had that he was going to execute. It was in God. In King Jesus who died for Paul, who rose from the dead for Paul, and who was praying for Paul. Jesus was at the right hand of God interceding for the saints, including Paul. It's how Paul knew that everything works together for good. Because the risen Lord is reigning at the right hand of the Father. But Paul doesn't just talk about Jesus and his Father. Who else does he talk about in this passage? He includes the Spirit as well. And that's why I backed up to verse 18 in Romans 8. Paul's faith is a Trinitarian faith. And he sees all three persons of the Trinity working together in history to accomplish God's purposes for His kingdom and for His people. God's, or Paul's confidence was in King Jesus whose Spirit strengthened Paul in his weaknesses and even groaned for Paul and all of the saints in prayer. That's what Paul says in verses 26 In 27, if you have your Bible open to Romans 8, look at verses 26 and 27 as I read it. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He who searches the hearts knows that the mind of the Spirit is, what the mind of the Spirit is, because He, the Spirit, listen to this, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So you got two persons of the Trinity making intercession for the saints. The Son and the Spirit. Groaning is an important theme in Romans 8. And it's an important theme for Advent because our waiting has a lot of groaning to it, doesn't it? Back in verse 22, Paul says that the whole creation groans. He goes on to say the whole creation's waiting eagerly for for its redemption, which is going to happen when the sons of God, believers, receive our full redemption, the redemption of our bodies, Paul says, when Jesus returns. And then the creation will be made new as well. You see, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, all of creation has been groaning, waiting for this final day waiting and groaning and we're part of that creation we also are waiting and groaning waiting for our new bodies waiting for the new creation groaning with the spirit and then in verse 26 paul says the spirit in us groans right along with us we're not groaning alone Creation is not groaning alone. We are groaning 
along with the Spirit, and the Spirit groans alongside of us. And he doesn't just, you know, it's not a moaning and groaning fest. He's groaning in such a way with us that he transforms our groans into prayers to God where there's faith. And so when we don't know what to say to God, when we don't know how to pray for what we ought to pray for, we can moan, or we, sorry, we can groan by faith. The Spirit knows how to transform our speechless groanings into prayers of intercession. There's a lot of mystery to this. And I can't say much more than I just said. But it's true. And we all know what it means to groan in anticipation, to wait with groaning. Well, you can do that in a faithful way. So you can, you can groan or you can moan. And you don't moan, but you can groan by faith. Paul knew what it meant to be so weak and so weighed down that he couldn't even pray a coherent prayer. When life doesn't make sense, sometimes it's difficult to make sense in our prayers to God. That's not the goal, but it's okay. Paul knew what it meant to come into God's presence with nothing but his faith. No words to go with it. Just faith. And maybe that's where you are. We all get to that point sometimes. Maybe it's where you've been for a while. And if so... It's okay. There's a right way to respond. There's a right, right way to groan. And, it, and you can know that it's right where God wants you. You can wait patiently for God to bring you out of it. Because when you are weak, God's Spirit helps in your weakness. When you are weak, the Spirit gets more opportunities to pray for you, to groan with you. When you're weak, Christ and His Spirit both intercede for you to the Father. When you are weak, God's power is made known in you, through you. When you're powerless and wordless and all you have left is faith in King Jesus, then you are finally in a position to become a super conqueror. So I don't know what God has put in your life to make you weak. There's probably something that you can identify. Maybe it's financial uncertainty right now. Maybe it's a vocation that you're dissatisfied with. might be secret shame caused by your own sin or someone else's sin. You know you're forgiven, but you're struggling with the shame. Or all, all of these things, the list could go on. All of these things make us weak in different ways so that God can become strong in different ways through us. So whether your weakness is physical or spiritual, emotional, financial, social, relational, intellectual, whether it's your fault, someone else's fault, the real question is whether or not you believe God's grace is sufficient for you in your weakness, in your inability to control this thing. Are you wanting to conquer your weaknesses or are you wanting God's strength to work through your weaknesses? So what's it actually mean? What's it really mean for all things to work together for your good, for my good? Paul's life never got good. Keep that in mind. He never got 
to sit back and enjoy the good life, as maybe some would define that. He continued to suffer and face first persecution until he finally was martyred for his faith. So how did, how's, that, how's God working all things for Paul's good? The answer is in the next verse, Romans 8, 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has predestined you. He's foreordained you. He's predetermined you, if you belong to Him, to be conformed into the image of His Son. He's predestined you to become more and more like Jesus every day. Now, if you're a theological type who likes to debate predestination with people, and you like to come to this passage, just make sure that you also like to talk about how God has predestined you to become holy and obedient through the things that you suffer. Because that's what the point is here. God has ordained everything in such a way as to make sure you look more like His Son every day. So when it says that all things work together for your good, It primarily means that all things work together for you to become more like Jesus who learned obedience to the things He suffered. So it's going to hurt. Your good is something that's going to hurt. The highest good in your life is to be molded into a faithful son or daughter of the King who resembles Jesus, the only begotten Son, of the Father. The Father in heaven will make sure that you, His chosen sons and daughters, become like His only begotten Son. So if you're trusting in Jesus, you can be sure that everything that has happened to you and everything that is happening to you and everything that will happen to you will work together to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ, God's Son. It is God who conforms you into the image of His Son. And it is God who gives you an answer of peace during the grueling process of becoming more like Jesus. The peace that you're looking for in the midst of the storm can be found in the midst of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as they are molding you and chipping away at you. That's where you can go to find an answer of peace. You don't have to say anything profound. You don't have to say anything eloquent to God. You don't have to come to God with formal prayers and carefully constructed sentences. There's a time for that. But you can come to the Father with your faith and with your groaning. And then His Son and His Spirit who intercede for you will make up for your weaknesses. What then shall we say to these things, Paul says? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not even spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, will He, along with His Son, not freely give us 
all things, God is for you. He has given you all things, even His Son. He loves you far more than you have ever loved anything or anyone else. You are accepted by God because you are in His Son, not because of anything that you have done. So you can wait on Him. You can wait eagerly and patiently. You can rest in His infinite love. Wait patiently on Him. Wait on Him to work everything out for your good. He will do it. Wait and see. Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us promises that we can cling to, that we can hold on to, that we can rest in as we wait for You to do everything that You said You would do. Help us to trust in You. Help us to look to Jesus every moment and work Your grace in us so that we become more like Jesus as we endure, as we persevere by faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.